and welcome to another Meta Media Group production of On Purpose Magazine, featuring interesting, inspiring, educational, and entertaining stories, discussions, and interviews of purpose, with purpose, on purpose. Hello, everybody. This is J.W. Nigerian with On Purpose Magazine, and we have a special show today. Uh, we're here with Dr. Robert Nagorny. Now, Dr. Robert Nagorny has been on the show before. Uh, in October, I think it was October 8th of 2012, you released a clinical study uh, where he showed using uh, lung cancer cells that he was able to take cells from an individual patient and uh, while keeping those cancer cells alive, be able to test chemotherapy drugs or combinations of drugs on those cells to see which ones worked best, uh, killing those cells, so that he could come up with a chemotherapy treatment that worked for the individual. And what they found through this study is that standard chemotherapy usually had uh, success rates of only maybe one-third of the patients. Uh, I think it was 34%, if I recall correctly. And with the testing that was done and the new regime of chemotherapy drugs that was uh, taken out of this test, that they could increase chemotherapy success rate by uh, like 64%, which means, I mean, it, it almost doubled the chemotherapy success rate. Dr. Gordy, thank you for coming on today. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you coming back. Yeah, February is uh, the National Cancer uh, Awareness Month, and um, so I wanted to have you back because you're coming out with a new book called Outliving Cancer, um, The Better, Smarter Way to Treat Your Cancer. And I wanted to talk to you about that today to uh, help everybody during this uh, Cancer Awareness Month. For everybody who doesn't know Dr. Nagorny now, uh, perhaps you can go back to our earlier um, earlier interview uh, on, on the On Purpose website, but uh, I'll go ahead and go over your bio real quick to let everybody know who you are. So Dr. Nagorny, in addition to his position as a medical and laboratory director at Rational Therapeutics, uh, Robert Nagorny is an instructor of pharmacology at the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine. He's a board certified, or he's board certified in internal medicine, medical oncology and hematology, um, as a native of Bridgeport, Connecticut, Dr. Nagorny completed his undergraduate education at Boston University, earning a BA in chemistry, summa cum laude, Phi Beta Kappa, with distinction in biochemistry. He received his medical degree at uh, McGill University in Montreal, Canada, where he was a university scholar. After completing his residency in internal medicine at the University of California, Irvine, Dr. Nagorny received fellowship training in medical oncology at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. He went on to complete a second fellowship in hematology at the Scripps Institute in La Jolla, California, where he was the recipient of the Scripps Institute Young Investigator Award. With more than 20 years' experience in human tumor primary culture analysis, Dr. Nagorny has authored more than 100 manuscripts, probably more now, uh, book chapters and abstracts, including publications in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, Gynecological Oncology, and the Journal of, of National Cancer uh, of the National Cancer uh, Institute. 
He, was, he is frequently invited um, as a lecturer for numerous professional organizations and universities and has served as a reviewer on the editorial boards of several journals, including Clinical Cancer Research, British Journal of Cancer, Gynecolo uh, Gynecological Oncology, Cancer Research, and the Journal of Medicinal Food. And uh, this book that's coming out, Outliving Cancer, The Better, Smarter Way to Treat Your Cancer, uh, is a book that you've put together um, to go more, more deeply into this conversation. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Um, thanks, first of all, the uh, introduction and comments. I, um, yeah, the book itself uh, is a description of the scientific rationale, uh, the historical background, and the data that we have generated over the years uh, closely related to the study that you mentioned uh, at the very beginning, that is, the lung cancer study that we published in uh, October of 2012. Uh, as you correctly uh, mentioned, we approximately doubled the objective response rate and nearly doubled the overall survival in patients with uh, metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. The reason we chose lung cancer in that setting was because this is the most lethal of the cancers in the United States, causing more cancer death than any other uh, form of cancer. Uh, it carries only about a 14 to 15 percent five-year survival, and with over 200,000 uh, diagnoses each year in the U.S. alone and almost 170,000 deaths from this disease, we thought this would be a perfect example of how we might improve outcomes overall. With regard to the book, what we wanted to do was to take the same principle, the concept of, uh, of cancer biology being used to select and direct therapy and show how that actually applies to all diseases. So in essence, the book is a sort of a, a walk through um, what led to my thinking in this area, what my um, scientific background and experiences were, some of the um, trials and tribulations that we met over the years trying to convince people that they should re-examine the way they treat their cancer patients, and then finally in patient-by-patient um, -patient stories, an examination of how these laboratory approaches demonstrably improved outcomes, sometimes providing survivals five, seven, eight times longer than anyone would have expected in the given diagnosis. Yeah, and I think it's incredible. Um, last time we spoke, you mentioned that um, that they hadn't made any progress uh, in, in, let's just say, lung cancer at this point uh, for like 50 years. So this yeah. this is not a, this is not a small deal. This is uh, a, uh, this study is, is a big deal. Well, we'd like to think so. I mean, it is a relatively small series because we conducted the trial through our own institutions here in California. We would love and would welcome the opportunity to put these uh, approaches to to uh, more formal tests at a national level. And at every turn, we have encouraged the clinical trial groups to test these hypotheses. And uh, I can't tell you the number of gynecologic oncology group meetings and the number of presentations and, and requests that we've made to virtually all of the large cooperative groups. It's going to take, I think, almost a, a, a wave of public demand to get the scientific community to put these concepts to the test. We're ready for that, and we'd very much like to do it. It is surprising and disappointing that we haven't applied these uh, these kinds of approaches. I do believe that that's changing. Well, yeah, that, that's great. Uh, I understand that um, 
in the book you talk about the fact that uh, you were working in you know working with this the, chemo, uh, the chemotherapy um, therapies and that you felt that they were highly ineffective. Um, they're effective, obviously, we use them, but highly ineffective in the fact that the numbers were so low and that you won't, not only did you have patients dying, but you felt uh, that, we, you know, by using the, the, the same old method of chemotherapy, we're actually over-poisoning a lot of patients. Is that true? Yeah, well, the, the book itself is, is uh, couched a little bit as a story, and, and the story is how I came to study cancer and, and moved from general internal medicine where you take care of people with uh, heart disease and lung disease and diabetes and high blood pressure. And if, if you're a good and uh, uh, studious doctor, you can get pretty good at fixing people. I mean, someone comes up with a heart attack and you make sure they don't have an arrhythmia and you get them out of congestive heart failure and you give them some pain medications and a few weeks later with some cardiac rehab, they're back at work. Not so for cancer patients. What we were right. finding, and as I moved from my medical training in, in internal medicine in California to oncology, was that my patients almost uniformly suffered serious side effects and none of them seemed to get better. And I was, I must admit, depressed. I mean, I was, <laughs> I was uh, you know, distressed. I, I felt like I, I couldn't practice medicine. I didn't know what happened to me. I'd come through the ranks of the good internal medicine residents and everyone patted me on the back every time I got an art line or could intubate a patient in need. And then I got to my cancer medicine patients and they were getting toxic treatments. They were all feeling poorly. Many of them were hospitalized and really very, very few of them got better. And And as that uh, uh, experience unraveled. I, you know, I began to wonder what I was doing in, in oncology, even what I was doing in medicine. So right. the story is that I, I felt that I needed to do something different. I, I had to break the mold and get out of this treatment protocol thinking. And, and by virtue of the good luck of working with a colleague here in California, Dr. Larry Weisenthal, he and I had been working on a tissue culture method that he had been developing since his work at the National Cancer Institute. When he came out to the University of California, Irvine, and joined faculty, and I was just a kind of a pipsqueak, I was just an intern, and he was a you know, more senior guy having finished all his training, mm -hmm. I was immediately drawn to the idea that patients could be tested, tissues could be examined, laboratory studies could predict outcomes. And everybody said, oh, no, you can't do this, and uh, it didn't work in the past, and uh, why waste your time? And I said, well, working even preliminarily in the 80s, working in this laboratory, we immediately, immediately saw that patients got better. We could get patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia or acute leukemia to respond to regimens that most doctors might not use. So my first publications and presentations were not surprisingly in leukemia, a disease that's easy to study, a disease that has a number of active drugs, and a disease for which good outcomes and bad outcomes declare themselves quickly. Because as you can imagine, acute leukemia is either treated effectively or lethal. So with all that under our belt, we said, well, well what if you moved from the leukemias, which constitute a relatively small portion of all cancers, only about 10% more or less of cancers are bloodborne. So now we said, well, what about all the lungs and colons and pancreas and breasts and ovaries and melanomas? What about all the things that kill most people? And that was a, a hurdle that really required some doing because leukemias can be isolated from the bloodstream relatively easily. Mm -hmm. Solid tumors are, are a, a mixture of blood vessels and inflammatory cells and fibrostroma and tumor cells and all kinds of stuff. And 
it took a lot of doing to figure out how to make a cancer patient's tumor from solid tumors, as I said, like lung or colon, to make them behave in the test tube like they would behave in the patient. That, that actually took us quite a lot of doing. And over a period of years, we began to realize that the cancer cells didn't want to be disaggregated, didn't want to be isolated. They didn't want to be single-cell suspensions. They actually wanted to stay in their native state. They wanted to kind of clump together. And after testing them alone and together and clumped and all this stuff, we realized that these clusters, these aggregates, what we call microspheroids, were really the most uh, close uh, uh, repre recreation or reproduction of the human tissue in the body. And so with the hurdle of um, studying cell death, which is a principle of, of our work, and then studying it in the right model, these microspheroids, we suddenly found that our colon cancer patients and our lung cancer patients and our recurrent ovarian cancer patients were responding dramatically. And, and that was when I thought, well, We've kind of gotten over the first hurdle. We can do it. And secondly, we know how to do it in the more common diseases. So I, I felt, at first, confident that, that people would join us and say, oh, uh, good, I think you've finally shown the work works. I think this is a credible scientific pursuit. And that didn't happen. And, and, and that was terrifically disappointing because, because I thought, well, what do you have to do to convince people? You know, what do you have to right. do to impress people? And uh, we, uh, we found at that point that uh, we had to go back and redouble our efforts in clinical trials. So we began to do trials in breast cancer and trials in ovarian cancer, and, and most recently, as you mentioned, trials in lung cancer. And we showed each time that the patients who got drugs that looked active in the test tube got better. And this didn't just look like an observation. It was actually statistically significant. And it wasn't published in some fly-by-night journal. It was published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology or the Journal of Gynecological Oncology. These are the you know, premier journals uh, in the literature. And even still, we meet resistance. So, yes, the, the book is in a way um, kind of a, a, a method, an attempt to get out to the public, perhaps an end run around some naysaying, uh, uh, forces and Enron to get people to, to read and examine the data for, for its merit and, and begin to use these, these tests to save their own lives. Well, doctor, let me ask you, because when you start thinking about it and you find out what you, know, what you did and, and how it works, uh, it, just makes, it just seems to make no-brainer sense that if you're a doctor and you're uh, using chemotherapy um, drugs in combination or by themselves that other doctors have used to cure similar cancers or you're just doing guesswork, um, in not, you know, not to disparage, but if you're just doing guesswork on what these uh, chemotherapy cocktails should be, um, that that would just not be as good as taking somebody's individual cancer and finding out exactly what drugs do work and which ones don't so you don't have to give the patient the drug that doesn't work and maybe cause uh, more poisoning to the body that just doesn't need to be done. So why, is, why do you think the medical community is just not jumping on board? Well, actually, there, there are two reasons uh, why we think it works now and didn't work then. And remember that medicine is conservative by nature. I mean, the, right. the, the tendency for doctors to want to prove and prove again anything they do 
is because the stakes are high. I mean, if you make a mistake in treating a patient, uh, you could cause a death or, or unnecessary harm to a patient. And so doctors, and, and you know, not inappropriately, doctors want to be absolutely positively sure that the things they do are going to help their patients. You know, first do no harm. So in that mm-hmm. regard, the doctors want to be shown conclusively that what, what they're doing works. And uh, what you have established are very uh, large uh, groups, organizations, that test hypotheses. Now, the groups that test these hypotheses were in the past uh, willing to test the concepts of tissue-driven therapies. That is, this idea is not new. The first published paper of this type came out in the literature in 1954. So we're, we're rounding the corner on the 60th anniversary of, yeah. of this idea being tested. The reason that it wasn't accepted was that there were fundamental errors in our thinking about cancer biology. Most people today, when asked what makes a cancer tick, will tell you that it grows too much. It's a disease of cell division. We must stop cells from growing. We must stop cells from dividing. We must stop cells from making DNA. We must stop cells from using DNA. So not surprisingly, almost all interventions, whether they be radiation or chemotherapeutic, were guided towards stopping cell division. That proved to be an error because cancer as a disease is actually growing at a rate relatively similar to the normal cells in the body. It just refuses to die. And under those circumstances, as cells won't die and leave the gene pool, they remain in place to have a second or third generation. That is, cancer doesn't grow to become a tumor, it accumulates to become a tumor. And that's the reason that the average cancer in a patient can take decades to become manifest. The average lung cancer was at least 10 years in development before we can spot it on a chest x-ray. It was uh, noted by uh, one of the leading experts in colon cancer from Johns Hopkins that the average colon cancer in a patient has been present in that body, in that patient's body, for 27 years before the polyp detected on a colonoscopy can be found. So these cancers aren't growing rapidly, they're just slowly accumulating. And that process of accumulation is because cells don't want to die. So the first principle we had to overcome was stop people talking about cancer cell growth and start looking at tests that measure death. The second principle that we uh, had to overcome was that cancer wasn't a cell but a community. It isn't mm-hmm. a, uh, uh, an abnormal uh, mutation but an environment. And the cancer environment is increasingly the focus of many sophisticated centers, what we now view as the microenvironmental and cancer ecology, as we call it. So our process developed two direction changes that were unfamiliar to the scientific community at large. Kill cells, don't stop them from growing, and do so in a model that reflects the human tissue in its native state. Those two having been accomplished on our part, it's taking the medical community a very long time to get off the dime on their old thinking about cell growth and their old thinking about cancer as a cell rather than cancer as an environment. Let me ask you, because I've heard, and I don't know if this is true, maybe you can uh, clarify. Um, I hear that the healthy human body does have, all, all healthy human bodies from time to time have cancers that come up and the body takes care of them. Is, is that true? Is, is cancer fairly natural in the human body or is uh, well, it a parent cell? I think it's a very interesting question, but it begs another question. What is a cancer? Right. You see, you could say that an immortalized cell, a cell that has learned its way, 
around deprivation, let's say, for example, a prostate cancer cell, uh, when it's first one cell and it's living longer than its counterparts, is that truly a cancer or is that an aberrant cell? Now, if that aberrant cell is allowed to, to accumulate more and more like-minded cells, that is, then you are in the process of developing a cancer. But if that cell peters out after a couple of generations and doesn't establish itself, doesn't become entrenched, then I guess what you're describing is the, the early inklings of a malignant transformation that never bear fruit. And I guess in that regard, it probably is something that occurs regularly, but never manifests, never grows to become any, anything dangerous. <coughs> in that regard, <coughs> excuse me, in that regard, you could say that a sunburn damages cells regularly. People get sunburned all the time, but it's right. only the rare damaged skin cell that grows some years later to become a squamous cell, basal cell, or, heaven forbid, melanoma. So, yeah, I mean, the damage occurs, the process begins, but perhaps doesn't grow to the cancer. And, and in that regard, you may be right that we have these little beginnings of things all the time. Luckily, they don't uh, manifest as cancers. Okay, so in, in your book, um, uh, is this a book that uh, anybody should... You know, everybody should pick up to to understand and learn cancer about cancer, or is this something that uh, you would only suggest for a cancer patient, or is this or a doctor? I mean, who who is who should be reading this book? Well, as you might appreciate, much of what we know about human physiology is through the lens of disease. We only knew that insulin was necessary and required for normal health when we studied diabetic patients. And the process of diabetes became a window on human physiology. Similarly, cancer is a window. It's a perspective. It's an insight. And so what the book defines is the concept that by studying cancer, I and colleagues of mine have begun to understand human biology. And so what we, what we like to think this book is, is a very interesting introduction for people to think about human <coughs> biology through the lens of cancer. Human biology, what, what constitutes <coughs> the normal cell, its normal environment, what um, makes cells change in their behavior, how do these changes in cell behavior lead to cancer, and what can we do about cancer? But not only cancer, but cardiovascular disease, uh, uh, degenerative diseases, aging, all of the phenomena that we encounter as chronic diseases, cancer being one, are all part and parcel of these stresses and changes that lead from normal biology to abnormal biology and disease states. Cancer may just be one of many changes in the normal physiology, and I think the book, Outliving Cancer, is an example of how we must learn to outlive disease. We must learn to remain physically well, whether it's uh, under the uh, conditions of cancer or cardiovascular disease or, or metabolic disorders. We must learn to outlive disease, and, and that's through lifestyle changes, appropriate administration of therapeutics, perhaps nutritional uh, uh, changes that enable us to be healthier and more physically well individuals. One, one of the things you talked about in our last interview was you gave me an antidote, antidote about um, about a patient that you had that came to you and was told you she was ready to die. 
and you told her you're not ready to die. You're not dying. You just haven't you you have a cancer in you. Did right. I say that right? Yeah, I remember exactly the story. It's a patient that I still follow. She's four and a half years since the diagnosis of metastatic lung cancer. And when she came to me, everyone had had so much doom and gloom surrounding her stories that she was pretty well ready to die and 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 give up in in the uh, mid two thousand and eight when she was diagnosed. So when she came to see me, <clears throat> and we had done some studies, and I had found that there were some very simple treatments for her, she sat across from me and said, and started to cry, I mean, actually, and said, what do you mean I'm not going to die? And I said, well, you don't look like you're dying. And she said, yes, but I have metastatic cancer. And I said, well, you're, you're not sick, you just have cancer. And I said, if we can treat the cancer effectively, then you're not sick anymore. I mean, you know, and that's true of every disease. People have to realize that at the turn of the last century, you know, at 1900, if you were diagnosed with tuberculosis, you were dead. You were going to die of consumption. And along in the mid-40s came treatments for tuberculosis, and the disease went away. So, you know, we, we have to realize that the cancer management isn't some you know, magical process that robs us of our lives. It's a disease state that needs appropriate treatment. I I don't want to say I have perfect treatments, but the book, Outliving Cancer, is a blow-by-blow description of many, many patients, and I I only included sort of those striking examples of how these approaches to cancer patients have alleviated suffering and saved their lives. Many of these patients were completely given up on when I met them, yet one by one you'll come to learn that these people did well, live normal lives, and, and many of them are still alive, you know, six, seven, eight years later. You know, one of the things I appreciate, appreciate about you, Doctor, is, and I'm guessing since you told this book in story form uh, that it's going to follow, and that is that you tend to take the very technical and you seem to find the words that make it totally understandable. Um, I've had other doctors on the show, and my eyes start, uh, you know, folding back into my head uh, as they go into <laughs> various explanations of things. But you've always, uh, whenever we've talked, you've always made everything very understandable. So I'm guessing this book is probably uh, going to be a great read for somebody who wants to know, get the information, and doesn't want to be, uh, I'm sure all the clinical data is there, but, doesn't want, but wants to be able to understand everything. Is that true? Yes, very much so. I will say that there are points where I veer into the technical because I think that it is important even for the lay reader to walk away from this book not only understanding the message but actually being able to to confront their physicians with a level of sophistication that makes them a credible discussant. If a patient walks in and says, well, I read this book and there was a lot of nice stories, the doctor will say, oh, they're there. Let's go back to the protocol recommended by this institution. But if the patient walks in and says, well, doctor, have you considered the possibility that many of the drugs you're using cause a process of programmed cell death and that that process could be studied in the laboratory and these predictions work? I think the doctor will be forced to take the patient seriously. So, I mean, you know, depending on who reads the book, some people read it and say it's a little too technical. Other people read it and say that, you know, maybe it could be more technical. I'm I'm trying to take very scientific material and put it 
in phrases and in analogies that can make sense, even to someone who's really not in the scientific field. Well, let's talk for a minute about what you do. Somebody's listening to this right now and going, well, that's really great, uh, but I have cancer. I'm getting ready to go in for surgery or, uh, or chemotherapy, and I want to make sure I'm doing the right thing. Um, talk, let's talk about what you do, how you can help the patient, how you can help their doctor, uh, no matter where they are in the country. I know you're in Calif Southern California, but you, you can test people uh, if the doctor sends you samples um, of their uh, a biopsy of their cancer, you can test samples from anywhere around the world, and uh, you can work with their doctors and everything to uh, to come up with uh, the correct regime um, or pre correct protocol. Uh, can you talk to that? Uh, sure. Uh, first of all, yes, we work with uh, physicians all over the world. We currently have a regular and ongoing collaboration with uh, uh, some very good colleagues in Brazil. We have in the past worked regularly with Australian physicians. We have worked with European, um, uh, Chinese, uh, Indian physicians. So, yes, we can process tissues from around the world. Uh, the greater the distances, it does require a little bit of legwork to get them processed correctly and transported, but it's very doable. Mm -hmm. From a standpoint of what we do, the nuts and bolts are as follows. Tissues removed from patients will remain alive, relatively healthy, for a period of days. If you can capture those tissues transported in sterile material, in sterile media, by overnight courier, by, by jet courier, we receive the sample in our laboratory in California. These surgical biopsies or bone marrow aspirates or blood samples or fluid samples are then uh, sterilely processed in our laboratory and the cells, the grouping of cancer cells, are removed and placed into a blood-like material called media. At that point, we count the number of cells we've received and determine how many drugs and combinations that we can actually test. Mm -hmm. In the test tube, we add drugs of interest, combinations and drugs, and we give several day periods for the cells to, to kind of tell us, are they, are they happy to be in this drug or is this uh, material causing toxicity that will cause the cells to die? During that several day window, we get a, a handle comparing the drug exposed cells to those that are just in regular media with no drug. We get a handle as to how well the drug works. With a several day window of exposure, we then take down the study, examine the degree of cell kill, and compare it with the untreated controls, those tissues that were not exposed to drugs. We then uh, examine that in comparison to related patients. For example, if you have breast cancer, you want to be compared to breast cancer patients. Or if you have lung cancer, you want to be compared to lung cancer patients. So we compare your results to people like you to say that you are more or less sensitive than people like you. At that mm -hmm. point, we calculate a response probability and report back to the doctor by the seventh to tenth day after we've received the sample. Usually by the time the patient is healed from their surgery, we have in the hands of their treating doctor an outline of the most active drugs, the least active drugs, and the best combinations of the good drugs. With that information, the doctor can then make intelligent decisions and by uh, by a series of analyses that we still that we have conducted and continue to conduct on average that will double the response rate of any patient who receives the right drugs which is just astounding first of all and it's if you're a cancer patient this is something you definitely want to look into uh, if it's going to double 
um, the response of the chemotherapy you're going to receive. Um, the drugs that we're talking about, uh, these are all the standard chemotherapy drugs. You're not talking about drugs that aren't FDA-approved or anything like that or, or strange. This is all standard stuff, right? Well, we have three separate platforms that we are engaged in. The first platform is the standard compendium-listed, FDA-approved, write-a-prescription-for-it kind of drugs. And these are the drugs that every doctor every day gives their patients. We look at those as single agents, and we look at those as combinations. The second tier are what are now known as targeted drugs. Many of these are FDA-approved and commercially available, but because we're a little ahead of the curve, sometimes we find activity for drugs where the physicians haven't yet thought to look. For example, we have a very interesting case, a young woman with a very rare tumor who turned out in our laboratory to be sensitive to a brand new drug, a drug that is so new that it's only used in one disease. However, in this young woman, the drug had a very good profile, and, and strangely enough and unexpectedly enough, that approved and commercially available drug, but only used in a particular form of lung cancer, turned out to be active for her sarcoma, and wow. she has had a very good response. So that's the second tier, and we call that the target analysis. And then we have a, a third platform, and that is what we call the translational platform. And the translational platform is really brand new drugs, drugs that are just beginning to hit the, the market, just beginning to get into clinical trials. Some of them aren't even in humans yet. And those drugs, many of which are at least in clinical trials, enable me to say to a patient who's failing therapy here in Southern California, well, I'm sorry that this uh, uh, current collection of therapies aren't working, but we have found that a drug which is currently available at the University of Colorado is very active for you. And if you would like to arrange it, we will gladly contact the group there. I have a number of patients, if you can imagine, I have a number of patients who commute to Colorado today to receive a treatment that I know works but I can't give because it's not in the market. Nonetheless, these patients are, one of them is now, I just saw this week, one year on a drug that she can only get in Colorado but continues to do well on that treatment. Wow, that is, that's so incredible. And, uh, you know, we, I want to just thank you for the, the you know, <laughs> for taking the time and, and, and really jumping into this kind of uh, uh, technology. And uh, I think that you're going to help just so many people, and I, I know that if you go to rational-t.com, rational that's Rational Therapeutics that where you work, uh, that you can get uh, stories uh, from a lot of your patients there um, even before they get the book. Uh, you have a lot of testimonials from patients there for all sorts of cancers, and uh, they talk about uh, uh, their successes. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And part of the reason we do that is because patients are very often comforted if they can read about their own disease. Uh, we don't want to say that these individual patients are going to uh, prove the point. that They're not statistically significant studies. What they are is very individual human stories written by the patients so that someone with pancreas cancer or someone with advanced breast cancer or someone with recurrent ovarian cancer can read a story and say, well, what do you know? This person had something very much like me and got better. And so, yeah, that, that is, uh, to, a, you know, to a large degree, why we'd like to give people the opportunity to, to you know, on a very personal level, familiarize the, themselves with what we do. 
secondly, the book itself, as I mentioned, um, Outliving Cancer, has many very interesting and more detailed analyses of patient outcomes. And what we use the patient stories in the book to do is to exemplify the scientific principle. For example, a person who has a particular mutation is treated with a novel drug and has a very good response. Well, then we go into the whole science of what drives cancers and what these mutations mean. Uh, another story might be a patient who had failed a drug, but when we took the same drug and combined it with another drug, we can explain through this individual patient the concept of drug synergy and combinatorial effect. Um, Another patient might represent the use of a drug that is only approved for one disease but turned out to be particularly good in another disease, and we can examine how drugs are developed, how they're, they're uh, tested, and how the approval processes uh, uh, provide use of drugs that might be improved by these approaches. So, so each patient is a jumping-off point for us to then explore sort of scientific principles and, and, and um, uh, biological principles of interest. And we hope that those messages will come, come across through these stories. And let, let's talk for a second about cost. Uh, um, I know that the cost is uh, quite low, uh, astoundingly low, um, uh, for, for this test. Uh, is this something that's covered by um, insurance, or is this something the patient has to come up with? Well, we, we always bill every patient study to their insurer, and we do have a success rate in insurers covering it. Um, but I would say that often the patient will find themselves in a battle with their insurer. And the reason right. is because this work, as we're publishing our experiences, this work is still working its, its way through the, the, the literature. Um, what uh, patients must do is be prepared to consider the possibility, at least, that they will be out of pocket. Now, the laboratory analyses we currently conduct are about $4,000. Um, to put this in context, molecular profiling, which is techniques where you use gene profiling, are charged out at anywhere from ten or 12000 up to hundreds of thousands of dollars per patient. Right. They have yet to prove their efficacy, yet some insurers will cover them. And it's not so much because they work, but because they have a kind of scientific interest, and so the insurers are kind of dazzled rather than convinced. Um, yeah, we think that these are very worthwhile for patients. We're still working through the process of insurance approval. Patients may confront up to $4,000 out of pocket. I know that that can be a hardship for some, but it's not so large an amount of money that someone couldn't uh, often cover it, and it could be a lifesaver for many patients. Oh, right. <laughs> absolutely. So, Doctor, the, the book, Outliving Cancer, uh, The Better, Smarter Way to Treat Your Cancer, um, this is uh, not going to be released, actually, till March. So right. can people pre-order this book? Right. It's published by Basic Health Publications from California, uh, the book is now on uh, pre-order, and it's either through basichealthpub.com or through amazon.com. And again, the book is Outliving Cancer, uh, The Better, Smarter Way to Treat Your Cancer, and I'm the author, Robert A. Nagorny. Great. So, and uh, the book is uh, totally affordable. It's uh, a great book, something you can really get a lot of information uh, from. Uh, 
something that you can arm you to take to your doctor when you want him to take these uh, take this seriously and uh, look into this test for you. Um, or you can get a hold of uh, Dr. Nagorny at uh, rational-t.com. That's the Rational Therapeutics uh, website. Uh, you can get a lot more information at rational-t.com also. Um, and uh, for anybody who is suffering from cancer or knows of somebody suffering from cancer, this is information that they absolutely need to have. Um, doctor, I really thank you for not only for the work that you do, but uh, for, for getting this information out because I, I, I more than suspect it's, it's absolutely needed. Well, thank you. Thank you for uh, your willingness to, uh, to promote this work. We really do think it's a lifesaver for many patients. And, uh, you know, as a practicing medical oncologist, I, uh, I feel that we should be using these services wherever possible. Okay. As I often do, Doctor, um, I like to give the last word. So maybe you might want to say something about uh, something uh, about the book and uh, um, who it will help and, you know, why people should get it. Or maybe just you just want to give a last word uh, of, you know, go ahead and do whatever you want to do. I apologize for sure. telling you what to do. No, no. Well, you know, what we often say to patients is that um, you never have a second chance at first-line chemotherapy. Yet it's first-line chemotherapy that gives you the best chance of cure. So if patients are going to get better, rather than slogging through a lot of treatments, they should examine how best to pick treatments up front. That's not to say we can't treat recurrent disease, but we're certainly uh, interested in taking curable patients and giving them the best chance for a cure. Uh, Outliving Cancer, the book, is designed to explain on a patient-by-patient basis and on a principle-by-principle basis the, the features of cancer biology that we can use to our advantage. Cancer is not an incurable disease. These diseases are not uh, insurmountable problems, and every patient should take charge of their own disease and make the most of the opportunities uh, at hand. Well, thank you. This is J.W. Nigerian with On Purpose Magazine, and we're speaking today with Dr. Robert A. Nagorny. That's N-A-G-O-U-R-N-E-Y. And he's the author of Outliving Cancer, The Better, Smarter Way to Treat Your Cancer. Uh, doctor, again, I thank you for your time. I know you're a busy guy. And uh, for everything you do, um, I, I really appreciate you coming on today. Well, thanks for having me. Everybody, have a great day and an even better tomorrow. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to our Made Media Group production of On Purpose Magazine. You can find On Purpose Magazine at onpurposemagazine.com. On Purpose Magazine and JW On Purpose is the property and is a trademark of Made Media Group, and this audio is copyright 2012, and all rights are reserved.